Verse 16 of Exodus 20 simply says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Would you pray once more with me, please? Father, as we prayed for our kids, we're praying for ourselves the same thing, essentially. Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive your word, that you would transform us more into the image of Christ, that your spirit would so speak to our hearts that we would not leave this room unchanged. That we notice it or not, Lord, we know you are at work. And we participate in that, as Paul says in Philippians, by working out our salvation in fear and trembling because you are at work within us. And so, Lord, as we look at this matter of truth and this commandment against lying and bearing false witness, we pray, Lord, that you would reveal lies in our own hearts and in our minds, ones that we've believed, ones that we've perhaps told, ones that we've adhered to, ones that perhaps are foundational to our understanding of ourselves or of you or of other people. Lord, would you take away all lies and overcome them by the power of your truth? We want Christ to be exalted. We want to think much of him as we look to this Old Testament passage, knowing that we are not under the law as we once were, but are under grace. But this law now has real life power to remind us of what we've been made into, that you are forming your character in us. You, the true one, are making us true in all things. So we pray you'd open our eyes to the good work that you're doing. Grant us repentance. Grant us faith to trust you and grant your church unity in the truth for your sake, for your glory, for Jesus, and in his name we pray it. Amen. Well, coming to the second to last commandment, we're following this idea of the law of liberty. Because if we are in Christ, the law no longer condemns us. Right? We are no, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we do not look to these laws and say, oh my goodness, I know I have told some big whopping lies this past week and I'm basically here to just get beaten into the ground and feel terrible about myself. That's no longer the purpose of the law. The law now serves as, as it once did, a tutor to lead us to Christ. Now it is a reminder again of who Christ is, what he's done on our behalf, and what he's making us into because of his work at the cross. Alistair Begg's quote that I, I think I read the last time we were in, yeah, in commandment number eight. He reminds us that we are not justified by keeping the law, but having been justified or made righteous, made right with God by what Christ has done, having been justified, we keep the law. We don't throw it aside and act like it has nothing to do with our lives anymore, but we look at the word of God. We look at even particularly these 10 commandments and say, how can I now reflect the character of God in all my decisions and all my interactions? And we come to verse nine as one again, that like you shall not steal, like you shall not commit adultery, like you shall not murder, we can all generally agree that lying is wrong, right? You shall not bear false witness. Not just because the Bible says it, but because most of us, if not all of us, have plenty of background stories in our minds that remind us that one time I told a lie or that one per time that person lied to me, things did not work out the way I knew they ought to have. 
we can agree with God's word in this, in practice, in word, and even in our minds, but our hearts are a different story. Our hearts, though, if you're in Christ, you've been given a new heart, you're redeemed, you're made new, you're still going through this process of sanctification, aren't we? If we're in Christ, we're being made more like Christ. We're not suddenly perfectly like him. And as we look at this commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We have to examine our hearts a little bit more deeply than, hey, did you lie to anybody this past week? Did you say something that wasn't true? Maybe that's a real problem in your life. Maybe it goes deeper than that. Maybe it's more subtle. Maybe it's more sneaky. But for the Israelites who are receiving this, you can tell from the language that goes beyond just simply saying, you shall not lie. Look at the language. You can hear this idea, this theme of a courtroom situation. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness. Being a witness in a courtroom situation is to say that the person coming in as a witness saw or experienced or heard or in some way they have a connection to the crime that has been done and they have something to say about it. And so the immediate context is given to us to say, hey, when you are put before a group of people, and particularly in a judicious situation here, you need to be sure not to lie about something that happened. Either saying somebody did or did not do something, or that it happened in such and such a place, or that it didn't happen in that place or in that way, or whatever it might be. Bearing true witness means that our answer, our response, and our testimony aligns with the truth regardless of the effects, regardless of the results. I mean, why are we tempted to lie? The only reason would be because we know that if the truth is shared, there will be some harsh consequence, or it might be just not to our liking. We might think it would be easier to kind of twist things around to fit how I'd like them to be so that people might perceive me in a certain way, Because we're afraid of the truth. Because the truth has to do with light and revealing things. Uncovering things that perhaps we might like to leave covered. Well, in the courtroom situation, of course, this is a big thing. But as Kevin DeYoung says, these commandments are often given to us in the context of the worst kind of example. Right? And, and for many of us, our minds probably go to, well, what's the worst situation you could lie in? It would have to be before, before a judge and a jury and in a very official setting like that, right? And so God's word gives us this extreme circumstance where the truth is being highlighted as the main goal in that kind of context, right? But of course, like every other law, this law does not simply work out as, <laughs> this is not something you simply pay attention to when you're in that situation, but as you go day by day in every area of life. The Israelites would have most certainly seen an immediate connection to the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is the second commandment having to do with our words. Again, the first one in the third commandment saying, you shall not take upon yourself the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't treat it lightly. Don't throw it around like it's another cuss word. Also, don't call yourself one who belongs to God while you're acting contrary to that. You know, bear the name of God well and bear true witness to your neighbor. Well, who is my neighbor? Is that 
famous question Jesus was asked. And he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, and he said, well, this is the guy who helped out the other guy who was beaten up and left for dead. And you should go and do likewise. Well, to who? Who is my neighbor? It's anyone else that you see with your eyes. It's another person. It's not simply the person that lives next door. It's the person who lives under the same God that you live under, whether they acknowledge it or not. And so as God is the true telling, truth-telling one, the one true over all things, so his people must also walk in and testify to the truth in all of life, every aspect of life, from the highest situation of being in a courtroom to where you sit right now in church on a regular old Sunday morning. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. What could a careless word be? In, in my mind, I immediately think of those times where I've brushed people off and I've said, uh, it's just blankety blankety blank or whatever. Not thinking about what I'm going to say, but trying to move on, to move past whatever that conversation might be. But a careless word could be anything that, of which we don't give the proper weight that it belongs, that, that belongs to it. And Jesus says that on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Can you imagine what that book looks like for your life? That is not just a little pamphlet. It's not like just the bulletin, right? Front and back, this is everything I've said. Every single word you'll give an account for. It's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? kind of makes us think, especially for those of us who do a lot of talking for our job. I mean, that's the main thing I do. And I can't be sure that I haven't had any careless words come from this context. And what about just in everyday normal conversation? Jesus is going to care about those as well. It's kind of an overwhelming thing when we consider every word we've ever said. And particularly in the information age that we live in today, where words are thrown around even more carelessly, it would seem... I have this really terrible habit, and I'm going to blame it on being a former English teacher, but I analyze, like, every text message I get. You know, there should have been a period here. Where's the comma? They misspelled. I was doing it this morning, wasn't I? I didn't even realize I was doing it. Talk about careless words. It could just be overwhelming how harsh we can be without even realizing it. And these are the careless words that we need to watch out for. If you go to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, you'll see the depth of why God cares so much about our words. He says in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that make haste to run to evil. False witness who breathe, breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. And that list of seven things that the Lord hates, that he abominates. Three times, maybe only two. I counted the last one. One who sows discord among brothers. That's most often going to involve lying, isn't it? Two or three of those things in that list have to do with our ability and our lack of control in our truth-telling. This is something that God cares about. 
something we need to deal with. It's something we need to think critically about. It's more than just saying, hey, I'm a Christian now, so I'm not going to lie anymore. But it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? It goes into some more subtle things that we'll deal with in a second here. Things that we let slide, that we, like, like my whole criticism of spelling and text messages. I have time back to C.S. Lewis and listening to The Silver Chair, um, which this is now book... Well, it's, it's like the second to last one. Yeah. So there's, this is book five or six then? It's book six. So you could tell I'm really committed, right? We've, we've gone through, we've read all the, the first five and we listened to the fifth one on the way down to North Carolina on the way back. And um, it was fascinating how much this book, The Silver Chair, kind of informed not only this message, but a message that'll come in the future, Lord willing. But in the beginning, you have this character named Jill, who's never gone to Narnia before, and she meets Eustace, who's been there before, and Eustace is telling her all about this world that he went to, and she says, I don't believe it at all. You're going to have to prove it to me. So, of course, they end up getting swept up into Narnia. Um, she ends up, like, pushing him off of a cliff or something like that, which is kind of hilarious, because Eustace is definitely the kind of character that either would get pushed off a cliff or that you kind of want to push off a cliff sometimes. Um, he's kind of a, an annoying little brat. And Jill ends up accidentally being a part of him falling off a cliff. And so she has a conversation with Aslan. It's pretty intense. He puts her on a quest. And he says, you're going to find four signs on this quest. And you need to pay very close attention to what they are as I tell you and memorize them and think hard. Listen to what he says to Jill says, as the lion seemed to have finished after giving what the four signs were, Jill thought she should say something. So she said, thank you very much. I see. Child, said Aslan in a gentler voice than he had yet used, perhaps you do not see quite as well as you think. But the first step is to remember. Repeat to me in order the four signs. Jill tried and didn't get them quite right. So the lion corrected her and made her repeat them again and again so she could say them perfectly. He was very patient over this. I love that Jill has this moment where she's listened to all the four signs and she's like, I know I don't remember those at all. But what does she say? Thank you. I see. I get it. I don't know if you do this when people are telling you something and you kind of say, I know I'm not going to remember anything this person's saying right now. It's very easy to do this with directions, right? Where should I meet you? Oh, it's really easy. Let me tell you how to get there. And you're like, oh, please, just give me the address. I have a phone. I'm going to just put it in. Don't make me remember to turn left at McDonald's and to find this, these strange landmarks. I'll never remember those things. Maybe you're not like me. Is anybody else? Yeah, a little bit. Thank you. <laughs> but it's so easy for us, even in that context, to just kind of say like a little lie there and just say, oh, I see, I get it, I get it. And Aslan calls her out on this immediately. I don't think you get it. Let's practice this. You're not going to remember these things right away. And truth is very much like that. Truth is not something that comes naturally to us. Even as obvious as truth can be sometimes, lies are so much more attractive to us than truth is. And so the people of God, the people of the true God, in walking in and testifying to this truth in all of life, have to commit themselves. That's why every week we open up this book of truth and tell you, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I imagine most of us, if you've ever memorized the Ten Commandments, you probably haven't forgotten that that was one of them, um, or maybe even perhaps just that it's number nine. But I would say that if it's in here, we need to remind ourselves again and again and examine our hearts again and again comparing our lives to what God's word says 
and seeking Christ to bring us closer to himself. Well, Jill needed to cling to and memorize these signs of Aslan. And this is, of course, the positive side of the commandment because we can't say that this ninth commandment is simply, hey, make sure you don't lie. Because God's word, even though a lot of these commandments are put in the negative, most of them are put in the negative, and Alec Mateer has told us again and again that they're put in the negative to fight against the heavy, strong tide of wickedness in our hearts. But there's always a, a positive side underneath that as well, and that is God's love for truth. God loves truth so much he cannot lie, the Bible says. It is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to give misinformation. Even if he says something, like at the beginning of creation, what does he do to create things? Speaks them into being, right? And he says, let there be light, and there is light. If if you're in a dark room and God says there is light, he's not lying because after he says it, there's going to be light. Because his words are not only true, but they are also powerful and authoritative. And there is no word greater than his word. And yet the mystery of this and the mystery of Jill's inability at the first place to take seriously Aslan's reminder to remember these signs, the mystery of it is found in our hearts. We need to realize that the issue of truth in our lives begins with the fact that Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. He asks the question, who can understand it? Who can understand the human heart? Why is it so hard to understand? Because it's deceitful. Your heart tricks you. It goes against every Disney movie and every American dream, you know, mantra or thought process that all of us 90s kids grew up believing, right? Follow your heart. Just trust your heart. The Bible says your heart lies to you. And that's where the beginning of our problem lies, (laughs) rests. Beyond that, our heart does not have a long way to go to get to our tongue, to get to our mouths where words are formed and transferred from out of our hearts. Um, James tells us in chapter 3, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. Wow. James just described all of you and me, every person, anyone who has a tongue that they use to speak with. He says the tongue is a fire. It's set on fire by hell, a world of unrighteousness. It stains the whole body. The words that we say to each other define for us what we think about that person, don't we? That person's very nice to talk to. That person isn't always so nice to talk to. That person says nice things. That person says rough things. First impressions, of course, are not meant to be the defining factor of us, but we do know that our words, whether true or especially when they are false, can have a very heavy impact on our relationships. So to continue Aslan and Jill's conversation, Aslan says, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and you wake in the middle of the night and whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. 
Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs that you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs. Believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Our ability to conform to the truth is going to be directly related and empowered by our experience of this book. To set it aside and to act as though it is a relic to be opened up once a week in a very ceremonial fashion, even, is to miss entirely the purpose of God's word. To miss the purpose of what he has sent his word to you to accomplish. He's confident that his word is going to accomplish. He tells us that in Isaiah, that it's going to, his word that goes forth from his mouth will accomplish what it sets out to do every single time. I don't know about you, but I don't always believe that. Sometimes I don't believe that when I'm standing up here. Like the time where I should believe it more than any other time, I'm like, I don't know. It's just another commandment number nine sermon, Lord. Is that really going to accomplish anything? There's our deceitful hearts. Looking at our own experiences, looking at our own perspectives, and forming our opinion of what God has said is true. Again, this is not just a simple light switch in your mind to say, no longer believe lies, and now believe truth. As much as we might wish that it was that simple, sometimes it's not. There is thick air in Narnia, as Aslan said. He said, right now you're standing on this mountain, you're with me in perfect perfect fellowship, perfect communication, but you're going to go back into the world, Aslan says to Jill, and when you get there, the air is going to be thick and you're going to become confused and the things that you're looking for that I told you about will seem different. And this is true for us as well. And I'll say none of us go into a job in the week ahead or go into our homes to care for our kids or for our loved ones or whatever setting we're in. None of us go with this perfect Christian bubble of clear air and perfect perspective of truth with us, do we? And I say that as a pastor who gets to spend most of his time looking at this and trying to understand it. I don't get a bubble for that. I still have to deal with the lies that come in from my deceitful heart and the danger of what what might set my tongue on fire and create destruction and a world of unrighteousness. The air is thick here on earth. It's not always so clear. And we need to be strong in the truth so that we can cut through that thick air. If we're in Christ, our hearts have been healed. They've been made new. The sickness is dying down, but the fire is just so slowly burning out. There are times where it feels like it is raging, where lies are so deceptive and so convincing and so desirable. The truth is, is God is working in you, Christian, that you might overcome lies with truth. John 8, 44, as Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
that line struck me as I was reading it this past week. I was like, that is like the core attribute. We don't really talk about the attributes of Satan so much. There's probably not too much to talk about there. But the core attribute of Satan is there is no truth in him at all. Why is he so good at convincing us otherwise? Is it that he's so good at it or is it that we're so susceptible to it? The truth is that if we have God's word and if we're leaning on God's word for truth, any lies that might come into play to tell me that I'm not good enough for God or to tell me that someone else isn't good enough for God or or to tell me that I'm not good at my job or that I, I shouldn't even be alive, all those terrible lies that come and attack our hearts should be met by the truth of God's good word to us. If we were to take a moment and examine our own hearts and think about lies that we believe, and think about in another column, lies lies that we're telling, either telling ourselves or uh, maybe even more dangerously telling other people, we're only going to find a lack of reliance on God's word in every single situation. Because God's word doesn't speak to where you should go to college or where you should move or what kind of job you should have, but it speaks to who you are as a person so that you can walk in freedom of the truth and make those decisions. But because our hearts are sick, because our tongues are set on fire, the expression of lies looks different almost every time. In one way, it looks like flattery or exaggeration. I don't know if you've ever had a boss that you really wanted to impress or to make them think that you thought the world of them. And so you said, oh, yes, this project is perfect. I love my new seating arrangement next to that person I can't stand. Oh, this is such a wonderful situation. You're the best boss in the world. Flattery is lying, isn't it? And it's done so with the purpose of gaining something from that person to win something from someone else. Either acceptance or a raise at work, whatever that thing might be. Exaggeration. Boy, are we guilty of this? Telling a story that you know is just not that good. And so you say, ah, maybe that five-pound fish was really a 20-pound fish. And the story is bloated and, and exaggerated so that people will keep giving you their attention. Where when somebody asks you how your week is and you go, oh, it was terrible, when really it was just kind of rough. Exaggeration is a tempting thing because we believe that that lie will produce in that person's mind that we're speaking to a better image of who we'd like to be in their perception. That they would think, oh yeah, I want them to think that I'm a really busy person, that I'm a really successful person, that I have it really, really rough and they should be compassionate towards me. We don't need those kinds of things, but we are tempted to them always. How about gossip is a really big one, isn't it? It's a slippery slope, too. Because we think with gossip, especially if we've been believers for a little while, we think gossip is one of those things I can totally handle. I can see it a mile away. I've got it figured out. But how easy is it to slip into a conversation with someone where suddenly you're, you're talking very poorly of this person? And, and I see this too much in my own life and in other people, too, that we so often put things in there like, I'm not trying to gossip. But, right? I don't mean to speak bad about them. However, they're a pretty terrible person. Gossip doesn't even have to be a lie. It can be something that's true. But 
transferred in a conversation with the purpose of tearing that person down. It has the same effect as a lie in the end, destroying reputations in order to build up ourselves in our own mind. Jen Wilkins' book, The Ten Words, over these, these same Ten Commandments, she brings up another one I thought was very interesting. How about silence? Can you break the Ninth Commandment in silence? By not saying something that you ought to have said? By leaving truth out? How tempting is it to say, hey, in that conversation, I know I didn't lie, but I didn't quite tell them everything they needed to know. That is in itself, in one sense, a lie, is it not? To leave out some important detail that that person ought to know or to do so in order to preserve your own reputation. The people of God who love truth are not meant to be marked by hiding it, but proclaiming it, but rejoicing in it, even when it's rough, because we know that Jesus says in John 8 that the truth is what sets us free. Christ, the only true one who was killed under a false testimony, people accusing him of blasphemy, which he couldn't have committed. Because A, being God himself, he could not lie. And B, it was just the simple truth. He is the Son of God. And when he was put up on a cross, he was put up on that cross with a sign over his head that said, the King of the Jews, in a mocking fashion. And the, the, the spiritual leaders of the day were so bothered by that, they looked at it and said, oh, no, 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 no. Say, he said I am the King of the Jews. He's a liar. That's why we're crucifying him. We're not crucifying our king. And yet I like how Pontius Pilate responds, what I've written, I've written. We're going to leave it like that. As far as I'm concerned, he is your king. Jesus comes to the earth as the way, the truth, and the life to bring light to our lies and to bring us into the truth. Listen again to John 8, 31 through 36 here. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truly, true. This passage has all sorts of true in it, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. There is never a situation for those who are in Christ, especially, where telling a lie would produce a better result than what Christ could produce on your behalf. Because he says the truth sets us free. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You know the truth. The truth will set you free. You were once a slave to sin, but now you are freed, and you are freed indeed because it is the Son himself who freed us. I kept thinking of this line in The Princess Bride this past week, too, where um, Wesley and Buttercup are just out of the swamp. What's that swamp called? Somebody help me out here. Some swamp. No? Anybody? What? Fire swamp? Thank you. I can't, I'm not good at reading lips. This is not going to work for me, sorry. So they come out of the fire swamp, and everything seems like it's going to be better, and then Buttercup is taken back to the castle. And the, the prince's right-hand man, he says, oh, yeah, I'll get Wesley to his ship. It'll be fine. And, and so Buttercup leaves, and she's sad, but she's glad to know that Wesley's not going to die. And then Wesley, and it's just this great cinematic moment, looks at the bad guy and says, we are men of action. Lies do not become us. 
And so it is for the people of Christ. Christ has conquered every lie with his perfect truth. And we are freed from slavery to that sin. We are, as Christians, men of action. We are people who take the action of telling the truth and abiding in the truth and remembering the truth and proclaiming the truth. Because what Christ has done to free us to that truth is so amazing and beyond what we could ever imagine on our own. How can we not? How can we not testify to the truth? How can we not walk in this freedom day by day? Back to the silver chair. Jill's quest that she was put on was to find the long-lost son of Prince Caspian who had been captured by the evil witch and bound to a silver chair at night where he was throughout the day told lies over and over and over again and started to believe these lies and proclaim and glory in these lies. But every night as he would be strapped to the silver chair because he was told he would turn into a terrible serpent if he wasn't, he would sit there and he would come back to himself and realize that he'd been believing lies all this time and he would scream and look for salvation anywhere he could find it saying, no, this is not who I'm supposed to be. I'm not the slave of the queen. I am the prince. I'm supposed to be the heir to Narnia. And so when Jill and Eustace come to save him and they find him here and they realize this is, of course, the last sign that Jill was supposed to look for, they have to face off with the queen. And the queen, of course, does the same thing with the kids as she did with the prince, trying to undo all the truth in their lives. Is there really even a son is there a sun shining in the sky? That's amazing that you're thinking about that because I have lights in here, I have candles. And so you're using something that you see to make up that there's some other world out there called Narnia and that there's an Aslan. And there's a, it's just, it was just this whole three or four pages of her undoing, trying to undo everything that they believed, even their most basic truth. And the only thing that they had to stand on was truth itself. Of course, they overcame her and cut off her head, which was a really exciting part of the book. This is what Christ's work has done at the cross. He has cut off the head of the serpent for us. He has crushed the head of the snake. The father of all lies has been defeated. 1 John 3.18 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God, the reason Jesus appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil, to free us from lies so that we might walk in the truth. And so because of that, he calls us every day, to lean on him, to lean on the truth of the gospel and reject all lies that come against it. And you know, every moment you are going to be tempted to believe something other than or contrary to what Christ has done in your life. So what lies are you believing? What lies are you testifying to? What lies are crippling you? Are you jumping to conclusions when you hear something or see something and you, you start believing something that's untrue? how people think of you or how you're supposed to feel about other people. What Jesus has done at the cross frees us by the truth of Christ's grace. And so grace conquers because grace is the true means of reconciliation for us. If we're reconciled by grace to God, we should reconcile to one another and to the, those in the world, those that, that hate us, those that are against us, need grace. They don't deserve it, but neither do we. Christ calls us to give it freely to those in need. And if we are free, we're free to let truth reign in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds, and testify to Christ as the truth. So from big things in life to the courtroom situation, all the way down to what happens around the dinner table or in the church sanctuary, 
Big things, little things, let truth reign in all of life. We need to be serious about this. In Acts chapter 5, we have this really terrifying story of the early church. There's this couple called Ananias and Sapphira. And as they saw all these other Christians selling their land and giving the money to the apostles to help other people in need, they said, man, I really want that too, but I don't want to give all the money away. But I want them to think I gave all the money away. So they sell their land and they keep a part of it back for themselves. When they presented it to the apostles, they said, hey, this is everything. We're giving it to the church to help other people because that's who we are. Peter says in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And it goes on to say that Ananias fell dead right there. The same thing happened to his wife. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine how awkward that must have been on a Sunday morning? How terrifying, really awkward is too light a word. But, you know, somebody went back to the back table and dropped something in the box, and then they walked past Joe Ditto on the way out, and Joe said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? We'd be terrified. Why would God let this happen? To remind us of how serious he is about the truth, especially among his people. So if Ananias and Sapphira couldn't get away with this lie, why should we think that we could get away with any of the lies that we tell? any of the lies that we believe. Don't be bound by your performance in front of others like they were. That's a lie that leads to more lies. And there are thousands of other tracks that we face every day. But we belong to the truth. We belong to a different kingdom that's not of this world, a kingdom of truth. And that's what we're called to testify to. 1 Corinthians 3.17, a great passage, says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If the Spirit of God is inside you, working in you to make you more like Christ, He's going to point out the lies in your life. And if you think that there might be some that you're not noticing, just ask Him to reveal them, and He will. Because He hates lies. He wants to uncover the lies and let you walk in the truth. So arm yourself with the truth. Pick up God's Word every day. Every day. I'm not telling you how many chapters to read. I'm not telling you how long to be in it. Be in it every day. Take time to look at what God has to say and fill your mind with truth. And I'm more convinced, I'm telling you, I had such a weird journey with this because there was a time in my, time in my life where I just completely gave up on reading the Bible in the morning. And I just said, that's just never going to happen for me. It's way too hard to make it happen while I'm trying to get the day started. But I've noticed not only did I believe a lie that I could kind of get by until lunchtime or till another time that I could actually get into the word and be okay. But I've noticed on the positive side, what kind of impact starting the day in God's word really makes. And I mean, I'm still learning that like day by day. And, and now I am learning it on the days that I don't. I'm learning that, that lack, the thing that's really missing there. We need to start our days in God's word. Even if it's an audio Bible, there's nothing wrong with audio Bibles. They're good. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So hear away. Put it on your phone. Get in the habit of opening up a Bible app right away in the morning and starting listening to the Bible while you brush your teeth. If that's the best you can do in the morning, then do it. It's worthwhile. 
And it makes a difference because it is truth. So arm yourself with that truth. Walk in the freedom that it gives you. Walk daily in every relationship, in every circumstance, remembering that you are not one to tell lies. Lies do not become you. You are people of Christ, the one who is the truth. And so walk in that. Remind yourself. Preach yourself the gospel every single day. Christ died for you. He rose for your justification, and he's coming back someday to bring you into his kingdom of light and truth. Remind yourself of that day by day and testify to others who are still bound by the lies of sin. Can you imagine? For for many of us who have been a Christian for a while, perhaps we've sort of forgotten what that life before Christ really was like. And to imagine not knowing the truth of who Christ is, to imagine even having a day where you kind of said like, I don't really know about that whole Christianity thing. If you're in Christ, if you're in the light, if you're in the truth, then that difference should spark in you a fear of ever being back in that situation. Being back in the darkness of lies. Being slaves to sin, slaves to lies. And that is what the world around us, the people that you work with, the people that you live by, the people in your family people you see at the grocery store. Many of them are believers, but most of them are not. We're called to testify to that truth, to connect with people in conversation or however we're writing a letter or sharing a Bible tract. Be creative about it, but do it. Testify to other people of this truth in Christ. So is there anything that you need to repent of? Is there anything you need to repent of in regards to gossip or exaggeration or silence or just flat-out lying? Seek the Lord for repentance on that. And the hard part, if you need to make truth reign in a relationship, in a conversation, if you need to go and bring the light of truth into a conversation where you before brought lies and darkness, do that too because it is the truth that sets you free. Being comfortable and staying away from that and just saying it was so long ago or it doesn't really matter, that's not going to be better than what Christ will do in and through you by reconciling in the truth with someone. Do you need to be freed from lies that you've believed? Have harsh words cut you down and and ringing in your head day by day about how you're not good enough or how you didn't do this thing right, whatever that might be? Look to Christ. Don't look to your own heart. Your heart's going to deceive you. Your heart's going to say, actually, yeah, we are pretty good. We can figure... No, our hearts are going to lie to us, but look to Christ and see that Christ has done everything on your behalf so that you can walk in the truth confidently. And my last thing, a very practical thing to do here, memorize something from the word of God. I'm going to give you one right now, a simple one that you can memorize before we even get up to sing the next song. It's John 17, 17, and Jesus prayed it so you know it's good Jesus prayed to his father, sanctify them, that is the church. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You could spend hours praying that one passage. There's so much there. Sanctify, set me apart for the truth. How do I do that? Getting into his word, getting into the source of truth in my life. What he's spoken to me. Take Jesus' prayer for you and turn it into your own prayer. Lord, sanctify me in the truth. I know your word is truth, but there are so many things that I believe that are not true. Set me apart for only the truth. And watch what he'll do in your life. Watch what kind of witness he will make you into for his glory. Would you pray with me, please?
to, Lord, there are myriad situations in our lives that we could spend weeks covering and considering minute details and moments of harsh words or moments of gossip, moments of exaggeration, moments where we've used our words not to love our neighbor but to tear them down. Or would you reveal to our hearts the things that we need to repent of this morning? The truth that we need to embrace and perhaps that we need to proclaim, that we need to share, that we need to seek forgiveness and reconciliation with another, knowing that the truth is what sets us free because Jesus is the truth. Lord, we know in our culture, truth is just a lost thing, it seems. Truth is relative. Truth is momentary. Truth is cheap. We're not gathering here this morning to cast stones at the culture, but to examine our own hearts. Lord, reveal truth to our hearts. Let us walk in the truth. Let us walk in the freedom of it. Let us walk expectantly, Lord, that you will bring freedom in these situations in our lives where we need it. You would be glorified in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.